Okay, this, this is going to be quick. Um, the topic is, oops, was that, I don't know, but it was bad. Um, the topic is co-infected patients. And I'll just give you the take-home messages. You treat them the same as mono-infected, except you watch for drug-drug interactions. Okay, I'm done. <laughs> uh, so I told you to be quick, but let's go through some of the story. It, it shouldn't take more than 15 minutes, 20 minutes maybe. So um, how to pick the best regimens. This is a, this is a very important slide. Um, again, most of you, we went through and talked about this, but HIV and HCV are remarkably similar, right? Um, there's a little bit of difference in terms of the uh, propensity for transmission, but they, this one targets immune cells, this targets liver cells. There's years to clinical illness, decades to clinical illness. Both have very high level of viremia. Um, here it's about 1 to 10 billion viruses produced a day. In hep C, it's about 100, million, 100 billion to a trillion viruses produced a day. This frequently mutates, that frequently mutates. The big difference is right here, right? So you can cure this guy. And that's huge. Um, and it's also very important when you take your post-test one of the questions is about why can you cure, and the answer is because in hepatitis C, as we said earlier, there's no integration into host DNA. That's the reason. So everybody should get that right now. Okay. The other thing about HIV, HCV co-infection is that things progress faster. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's similar to other things that make hepatitis see progress faster in terms of fibrosis, like alcohol use. So if you have a co-infected patient who also uses alcohol, that's a really bad thing for development of cirrhosis. And they might have a fatty liver already. Um, so it's a problem. Um, as far as decompensated cirrhosis, uh, again, it's, it's bad to have co-infection. This is overall survival. And over 10 years, about half of the people untreated will die. So. Finding our folks, everyone, if you're running an HIV clinic, I'm sure by now every one of your patients has been tested for hepatitis B, all of them have been vaccinated for AB, and you've tested everyone for C, right? And now our goal between now and the end of this year, end of next year, will be to get everyone cured, their hep C. And we just take this out of the equation and move on. So that's what this workshop's all about. So when to start? Um, I like to get the HIV under control first for a couple reasons. One, that's the more urgent issue in most of the patients, and you get them on their medicine, you get it stabilized. By knowing their hep C status ahead of time before you initiate HIV and a retroviral therapy, you'll be thinking two steps ahead. You want to probably pick a regimen that has the least likelihood of drug-drug interactions with the HCV meds. So think integrase inhibitor that doesn't require boosting. Valtegravir, Declatosphere, good choices. Uh, coming up soon, probably in about three months, will be Bictegravir. I don't know if you all have heard of that, but it's basically Dalutegravir made by Gilead, in essence. It's a way to think about it. Um, so I like to get the HIV under control, and then as soon as I can, why wait? Uh, get, them get them comfortable with their ARVs, right? Assure that they're 
virus is undetectable, usually about six months, eight months later, maybe a year, but that's when you want to be transitioning to cure their hep C. And then what to start, this is again, I'll say it again, same regimen as you would for mono-infected. Everything that Dr. Nagy just talked about applies here, except we're watching for antiretroviral therapy drug-drug interactions in addition to, in some cases, the statins, in some cases, the imiprazole. And the same thing applies as well with the uh, CPT uh, child classifications, if it's B or C, which basically means cirrhosis with symptoms, cirrhosis with ascites, cirrhosis with varices, encephalopathy. I just put this in here, it basically says what I already said. The drugs work as well in co-infected as mono-infected. SVR rates are virtually identical with the more modern regimens. This is key. Um, in the guidance, in the HCV guidelines, in the HIV subsection, Jennifer Kaiser from Colorado is a pharmacologist who's on the committee. And she makes these things that I call a Kaisergram. And the Kaisergram is wonderful because it has all of the antiretroviral therapy drugs listed here, and it goes on now for two pages, or two sort of things, but you can see all the HCV drugs here, and it even, for the pharmacist, right, helps you out. So half of our audience here, it sounded like we're trained in PharmD and uh, work. This tells you what the substrates are, as best as we know, so you can predict, right, with a little bit of knowledge, it's not too hard to figure out. But there's also, there are also data, and when it's there, whoops, and when the data are there, it says it. When there are no data, it tells you that, but it might still give it a green if the knowledge of the transporters and the, and the uh, SIP enzymes is known. So there you go. So it's just extremely helpful. And then this is the newer agents and you can see where it goes. So do I expect anyone in this room, even the pharmacologist, to memorize this? Hell no. That's why you have, that's why you have the guidelines. You go there, you look. And there'll be certain ones you'll get comfortable with because you do it. But you ought to also always just kind of go to your head and go, I ought to double-check this before I order it. It's always a good idea. So let's go to a case. I only got two cases. Um, this is pretty simple. 49-year-old lady, co-infected. She's been suppressed on TAF, FTC, and boosted Darunavir with COBE. CD4 counts 435, no other medications. Genotype 1B, the five brochure came back confounded, means they couldn't, it's a five sort of thing you talked about a little bit. It, it, it might not give you an answer, but fiber scan is non-serotic. 8 kilopascals. Some scarring, but not cirrhotic. So, with that background, what are you going to choose? And I'll let you go ahead and vote. Sounded like Jimi Hendrix, but I couldn't tell. Let's see. There we go. Good. All right, so most of you got this right. Uh, and there are 
let's go through the answers. Um, is the clanosphere sofosphere okay here? Yeah, should work, right? Uh, the clanosphere is a great drug. It just happens to be financially disadvantaged because it's out there on its own, and when you give individual prescriptions for each of these, the cost goes up dramatically, so a lot of these insurance companies won't cover it, but it's just fine medically in this situation. How about Grisaprevir, protease inhibitor? Kobe's around, eh, not going to do it. This, sure, fine, works. Paratapprevir, protease inhibitor, eh. Simepprevir, you see how this kind of helps you? I, I, I love that. So pretty straightforward. And I didn't, I mean, I could easily underscore this and bold that too. It's just that it's just kind of hard. Even with 340B funding, it's, it can be pricey. Prevere. So this is the one where the FDA gave them Darunavir uh, with a 2.4 fold increase. Yeah. Remember? Um, so this is one of those ones where technically, from a safety standpoint, the FDA says no GP, yes, soft valvox. The increase was 2.4 fold for the Glacaprevir. So the guidelines and, and will say be careful and monitor, but it's not contraindicated. The, the bottom line is, I, I just think, especially when you've got Kobe boosting going on here or Ritonavir boosting, you're going to boost the protease of the HCV as well. Why bother? I mean, okay, so be plenty of others. Where it, I mean, we have had this conversation. The only thing that I'll say is, and having actually gone to the companies as well to try to understand and talk to the FDA about this, I mean, you probably know this, but from pretty early on, these groups were saying that these protease inhibitors are different. They're different, and I say different how different. What does that mean? Um, and if you look at the POP-PK data, as opposed to other protease inhibitors, you can't, it does seem like patients tolerate higher exposures of these, but I also would argue that we don't know how many of those patients had cirrhosis, and we certainly don't even know what the exposures would be when you have cirrhosis in this combination. Because I just I think it's important that this, it does start to get a little bit. Um, yeah, I, and I've been a little unfair. So the boosting is not nearly to the same degree, right? Because when you boost. Uh, Correct. Uh, what am I thinking of? Um, I've got all these HCV drugs in my head. Um, sequinavir. Thank you. It's, remember that in the old day? Sequinavir gets hugely boosted, right? You don't see any of these previers getting boosted to that degree. But on the, the other hand, just kind of, I don't know, I think that's a straightforward way to remember this. Because there are other places, like you'll see in the next case, where it's perfectly fine to use a protease inhibitor. And so this goes back, and if we look, kind of picking up on this, if you look at uh, Grisaprevir and Darunavir, it's not allowed. Um, are not recommended. And the same thing kind of here. Although, you know, if you didn't, if you got away, got rid of the boosting, maybe, but why? I mean, it just, the, adiz the adizanavir is kind of okay, but again, you would use adizanavir without ritonavir separately. 
right? You'd just be mono as at as Android because in prod there already is the R. It's just why make it more complicated than it needs to be, my opinion. Okay, let's go to the second case. Oh, look, it's the same lady, although this time it's a different story. TAF, FTC, Dalutegravir, CD4 the same. She's on a Miprazole 40 milligrams. You've been set up for this already, right? 40 milligrams of a Miprazole. Type 1A, 8 kilopascals, no labs. You checked just because you wanted to, and it was 1A. Now, what would be your choice of therapy here? Let's go ahead and vote. Um, what, what, what's your uh, Sesame Street song? Uh, we could hum it. Oh, that's really? Wow. How does a bastard orphan, son of a whore, and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean? All right. Except not all right. Oops. What, what's wrong with this answer? 40 milligrams of omeprazole, right? It's a bit of a problem. So you need, uh, Susanna said um, several times that you need stomach acid for uh, lidiposphere and vilpatosphere. Now, you can get by with 20, but 40 is too much. And in fact, there aren't many people who are going to be on 40 when you really, I had to look hard to find that. It might be somebody with a, an acute gastric ulcer. You know, but if somebody's got GERD, they're not going to be on 40 for the most part. And um, current recommendations about what? What do you think? Are you, uh, here we have a GI specialist, so you would. So tell me what you would be doing, Ken. Right. But, but that's not true. Most patients that have documented GERD with esophagitis are on 40. On 40. Okay. So. Um, All right. And if they have complicated disease, turn, some of them can you turn that on? I don't think it's working. Oh, try the other one. Sorry, that's better. I don't know if everyone heard the patient. Yeah. Forty is the standard dose for anyone with EGD documented esophagitis, and if anyone's had a stricture, uh, that's lifelong or even 40. eighty. Yeah. Eighty. Okay, so tell me how you manage. How would you manage this woman, assuming, uh, let's say. Four months ago, she had no stricture, said bad erosive esophagitis. It's now better on the 40. What would you do in her in this? I would cut her to 20 and then add the nighttime dose of an H2 for breakthrough. Okay. And then you're comfortable using lodeposphere or velpatosphere? We've been, that's been our standard practice. Okay. But at 40, you wouldn't go there? No. Okay. And you could use L-Bipir directly, right? Yeah. So I didn't go to the answers. Um, yeah, that's that would be that would have been my choice, right? So here's an example where you don't have the drug-drug interaction with uh, the protease inhibitor, with um, with the boosted uh, PI for the HIV. So you're using dolutegravir, and so working through it, would um, would you be okay with this regimen? Sure. That could work. So there's not always one. This isn't a board test, right, where you have to have one absolutely correct answer and others are wrong. It's more of a preference. 
And I think a lot of people are, um, it's really the Ritonavir, I think, that people run from. Sometimes it's the pricing, but they've got deals. Um, how about Semepravir, Sofosbuvir here? Well, can, can you get some Semepravir? <laughs> uh, maybe not. But yeah, so it's, it's but, but technically, you know, you could, you could use it, technically. Okay, I think we're making the points. And then again, you go back to the thing, uh, this nice graph, and you look up um, Elvisvir, Grisaprovir, look at Dalyotegavir, and it's pretty okay. Looks good. And if you go to Prod, also looks pretty good. Whoops. Back up. Back, back. No. I think I did what you did earlier. Yeah, there we go. Okay, so here's our third case. Same situation. Um, CD4 count 231, uh, 235 with TAF, FTC, Dalyotegavir, 1A, fiber scan, 15 kilopascals. Mmm. Ascites on exam. Ooh. Splenomegaly. I'm not going to interpret. I'm just giving you the facts. No rads. Now, what would be your choice of therapy? Oh, did I make it? What, what was the genotype? 1A. Okay. All right. Let you think about it a minute. Oh, sorry. This thing's not connected. There we go. Okay. Think about it for a second. Now we'll go ahead and vote. We're repeating the music because this is kind of a repeat question. Uh, let's see how we did. It's thinking. Ah. Okay. Let's go through the ones we probably think are wrong ideas. So this is what? This is at least child B, right? So we're dealing with decompensated cirrhosis. Now, pause for a second. I think in every one of our practices, I'll speak first person, in my practice, I have anybody with child something other than A, I'm co-managing with a hepatologist for several, several reasons. One, I can't scope them. Two, they decompensate sometimes suddenly, especially with ascites. They can have SBP, and, and you want to have somebody who knows what they're doing. Three, you want to have somebody who knows what they're doing. Four, did I say you want to have somebody who knows what they're doing? Five, you want to have them put on a transplant list, because if they're there, they probably need, I don't know what the MELD score is, I didn't calculate it, but they follow that, and that we can't do that. So we shouldn't be trying. But on the other hand, we can know about the antiretroviral. So Prevere, not with child B. Prevere, mm-mm. Prevere, Prevere, there's only one answer, right? I didn't get into the weeks of therapy, but you, you got it. And in this case, this probably, yeah, this one's okay. No, this one we need to have ribavirin with, right? Right? 
So I should have added that. But the point is, the point wasn't about that. The point was just saying, with child B, you don't want to use a protease inhibitor, um, and that's the take-home point. <laughs> Ken's going to go into that, right? Okay. I just wanted to kind of make the point about the drug-drug interactions and the child B refer child BC refer to a hepatologist. And just to finish out, um, the retransmission we've already alluded to, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But it's a bad mixture of you know sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That that these are crystal meth and other things that sort of impair judgment or um, uh, interfere with ability to uh, kind of, it, it, inc it increases the risk. And these are kind of hard numbers to see, but in Western Europe, um, 7.3 uh, per 100 patient years uh, risk of reinfection. I mean, it's a pretty high reinfection rate. If you look in London, um, in areas of Denmark and uh, France, it's, it's really uh, can be quite substantial. So we need to counsel carefully so that people are aware of that and hopefully uh, uh, are using protection, which is, you know, is sometimes a futile discussion. And then this is in San Diego uh, over these different eras. And I'm not sure exactly why um, that this is going, this much different than 2003, but it could be that it's just more prevalent in the area now, um, or there could be uh, the, what, what these authors said, where there's a higher incidence of crystal meth now versus then. But whatever it is, it's bad. So that's the one thing that I wanted to kind of leave you with on the co-infection. And that's all I had for co-infection. Yes? Yeah. Okay, so the question is, you have somebody who's, who's HCV negative initially, and you've got them on their HIV therapy, but they're fairly active sexually. How often would you recheck? Well, one thing for sure is I'm going to be monitoring liver enzymes. And if you see any kind of bump, uh, that's a signal that they probably have, or they could well have acute hep uh, C infection in particular. And again, I'm assuming, like most practices, you've already vaccinated with AB, so we got that covered. Um, and a lot of times they're on TAF or tenofovir, and that covers for B anyway, but that's, that's a good thing. Um, it depends on the risk. I mean, I would say at least if they're very active annually, I don't know what you guys are doing, but that's what I would do. But if, they're, if it's a low-risk kind of thing, I don't know that I'd recheck all that often, but I would follow the liver enzymes. Do you agree? Mike. And, and, and as well as directed at risk. And so, to me, oh, liver microphone. enzyme clearly. Um, oh, sorry. All right, sorry about that. So the, so the CDC says at minimum once a year for serology. Remember, if they've been exposed, they've either cleared naturally or by treatment, that annual would have to be an RNA because the antibody is positive for life. Um, so remember that. And then I think targeted more frequently at your, uh, as a clinician, your um, uh, judgment of risk in those patients. So certainly liver enzyme elevation. 
Um, but remember, you can also miss liver enzyme elevation. If you're seeing that patient only every six months, you could easily miss their peak in liver enzyme elevation. And remember, 25% of patients with hepatitis C who are HIV positive have normal liver enzymes. Now, normal liver enzymes means per the normal lab. So if you use an eye of 19 for women and 30 for men, maybe you'd pick that up. But I would say at a minimum once a year, in most of my really high-risk clinic patients, I'm doing it twice a year because they are exceptionally high risk. Well, and when we say test, it's not the antibody, right? It's, it's HCV RNA that you're really going to be looking for. If right. they've been previously exposed. If not, the CDC still says antibody testing. Oh, right. Um, so like yeah. in your case, the guy was negative. I was thinking about the reinfection. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah, right. Reinfection. That's exactly right. Right. Ken. Well, just there was recent data from the Swiss HIV cohort that said that it missed, if you did only antibody testing, you missed about 20% of cases. And there's several studies that show delayed antibody conversion of up to a year. So we do the RNA testing. Run prep clinics. Um, but I also run our prep clinic and our HIV and, uh, uh, clinic. And, and many of you may have seen at Croy, something that was really concerning, which was the data that came out of the Amsterdam prep cohort of a rate of almost 5% hep C positivity in their HIV negative MSM. Um, and whether that is related to drug use or high risk, high risk sexual exposures or both, that is an extremely concerning number. Um, and so in those prep clinics, I think attention to the consideration of HCV screening. We've generally, you know, as we talked about risk and sexual risk and who's at risk and all this, I mean, you know, before we had, most of the studies had said that an HIV negative patient was not at high risk for HCV. Um, that, that's clearly not correct if you look at that number. And I think this is a changing epidemiology. So in our prep clinics, we are now testing at least once a year and generally, because we have some really high risk patients every six months. I have one question on the card. I'll direct this to Dr. Sherman real quick. Um, so a genotype is sent, and it's indeterminate, mm. no answer, yeah. okay? But the HCV RNA is detectable at, this says 280. I don't know if it meant 280,000 or just. No, that, that's why you couldn't get the genotype. Right. So you generally need a titer of 1,000 to get the genotype on it. What would you do there? So, so there's pan-genotypic treatments now. Do you still wait to, to get the genotype out there? That would be a reason if you're going to treat that patient to go with a pan-genotypic treatment. Right. And um, I'm going to show you a, a variation of that actually in this case coming it up. It asked for if Cruza and Medicare denied it because there was no genotype. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that's that's... One of those cases that you have to try and get someone who is a medical director on the phone, and it's extremely difficult, but uh, usually if you can get the right person, you get what you need done. Well, that's a great question because uh, the one I'm going to show you here has a variation of that same question. <laughs> 